The Cynthia Joyner Real Estate Group is an award-winning team with hundreds of successful transactions under their belt. Through their national network, the Cynthia Joyner Real Estate Group works hard to help families realize the dream of home ownership. As a community advocate, Cynthia Joyner is proud to be the presenting sponsor of Jazz in the Park Huntsville. You can find the Cynthia Joyner Real Estate Group on the web at CynthiaJoyner.com. You've got a coloring book, and in classical music, you've got to color those things exactly the same every time the way it's supposed to be. In jazz, you're allowed to do whatever you want within those lines. So we have this vocabulary and we improvise. I think if you don't have an improvisation, it's hard to call something jazz. I think it's as simple as that, what separates it from any other form of music. I mean, you could go into how it was created and came from the blues and became, you know, in New Orleans and St. Louis and Chicago and now it traveled around and became bebop and then jazz fusion and all that other stuff. But if you're going to say they had one thing in common, it's the fact that the, the artist is not locked down to playing precisely what is written and that they can express themselves in the music uh, at will. Jazz. 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 Jazz with Kenny Anderson. My guest today is keyboardist, composer, and studio musician extraordinaire, Brian Simpson. Not only is Brian one of my favorite jazz musicians, but he's one of the coolest cats that I know and plays some of the funkiest smooth jazz in the land. He's not only a world-traveled musician, performer, composer, music director, and more, but he is one of Huntsville's favorite sons as he has citizenship in Huntsville and a key to the city. My guest today, welcome to Jazz with Kenny Anderson, Brian Simpson. What's up, my man? Wow, what an intro. Thank you so much, Kenny. I'm doing well here. Listen, I could have gone a lot of different directions because, you know, you're me familiar, man. You're my brother. And so uh, it's so important to have these kinds of opportunities to connect. The last time we did was on the 30th anniversary of my radio show when you graciously uh, provided me with an interview. And so you're always so gracious in terms of your availability, uh, your willingness to participate in the platforms that I have. And I just want to thank you for that for the, from the bottom of my heart. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, you know, you're a, you're a great friend. You've been a a wonderful friend. Ever since I met you, we uh, hit it off right away. So uh, you're like a brother to me and family. So I'd do anything for you. And you know what, Brian, uh, speaking of that, that's a great place to start because I met you back in 2013 when I established a scholarship at Calhoun Community College named after my parents, the Jack and Annie Anderson Second Chance Scholarship, which was designed to help young people who were transitioning to community college who perhaps had run into some adversity in life have an opportunity to get a certificate or get a diploma. And you played at Calhoun Community College. You played an event uh, that we called, uh, and I'm forgetting the name of it right now, but it was a beautiful event. First time meeting you, first time in Huntsville, and you actually stayed a few days. So we got a chance to have breakfast at another broken egg. And you said, <laughs> you want to take you back to the hotel? Brian? No, no, tour me around the city. Let's see what's going on. You were just awesome, dude. And I've loved you ever since. 
Hey, and that's a great city. I, I really enjoyed that little tour and the, the broken egg as well. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. Hanging out with my sister Jackie, of course. That was a whole lot of fun. Brian, I'm just so glad to have you here today. And I want to talk a little bit about just your career. I want to talk a little bit about what you've got going on and a little bit about what's going on during the pandemic as well, because these have been some interesting times that we've been living in over the last few months. Just want to kind of catch up with you on some of those things. But take us all the way back to the beginning. You have you come from a musical background and uh, those early beginnings, of course, always set the foundation for anyone's journey and perhaps anyone's success. So take us all the way back then and talk about your earliest beginnings and foundations in terms of your music. Um, well, lucky for me, uh, my parents both had uh, what I consider pretty good taste in music and very eclectic, but they particularly loved jazz. Um, and uh, my dad loved jazz guitar in particular. So uh, he had befriended um, some local jazz guitarists and they would actually, if we had a little afternoon gathering on a Saturday or Sunday, there would be a couple of jazz guitar players there playing in our yard at a barbecue or whatever. And uh, so I just grew up uh, idolizing that. Um, and I kind of always knew I wanted to do what I was seeing. You just want to, and my dad traveled a lot as a, as a salesman. So he kind of wasn't around during the week often. So there was a, uh, one of his friends named Bob White was a, a guitar player that lived in my town, but worked mostly in Chicago doing all kinds of gigs, just an all around working musician. And uh, he also played a little piano. So he was my first piano teacher but he would also take me around to music stores. He'd take me into Chicago if he was going to do a gig and I could just kind of hang out with him. And uh, it's kind of my uh, substitute father in a lot of ways. And that was just such a wonderful influence. Um, one interesting story that also made me excited about this business. When I was about 16, he got a gig playing for uh, Frankie Lane the singer. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember mm -hmm. Frankie Lane, mm -hmm. but this would have been the, uh, God, the seventies. And, uh, there was still these playboy clubs and there was one in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. So, uh, he took me along with him on that gig. And uh, as a 16 year old boy, I got to say that also was a, a big influence and made me ad uh, admire these musicians even more. So, uh, <laughs> I, I really liked hanging out with him and, and, so I got to see some of the best players in Chicago at the time as a, as a kid play a couple times. He let me sit in uh, and I just admired him. And, and I, I got to say that I admired the fact that they were all races and all that. It's like, I thought, well, these musicians are really cool people, you know, because that stuff just didn't, didn't mean a thing to them. And uh, that was just always in my, my heart from that time, you know, because yeah, I grew up in a community where there was, there was no African-Americans in my high school, not a one. So it was just, uh, it was nice that I was, was able to uh, just be in an environment where I could see how things could be really cool. Yeah, yeah, that's a very interesting backstory for sure. At what point did you decide that this is going to be the path that I pursue for my career? Honestly, uh, I so you talked about community college. I was one of those kids that didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I was in a community college and uh, I auditioned for the jazz band. Now, mind you, I had almost no experience playing with other musicians. I, I took lessons, played piano on my own, 
listened to the jazz records and jazz radio all the time, but I had practically no experience playing with other musicians. I auditioned for the Community College Jazz Band in Lake County, Illinois, and I had to be the absolute worst because uh, I had no experience. I was just playing chords, like <laughs> holding them playing with absolutely no vibe at all. And I got into the band and you want to know why it's because no one else auditioned on piano. So, <laughs> but I'll say this, I think I went from the worst to the best in about two months, mm. just because I had all that stuff logged in my mind, all the way of playing and how to, I knew it was all in here. So many jazz solos from Oscar Peterson and Joe Pat, all these great musicians, the stuff was in my head, but it had never been able to come out while working with other people. That's just something you can't do on your own. You have to work with other people. And just slowly but surely, well, actually very quickly, I was able to start soloing and expressing myself and get a voice on, on an instrument. And uh, it was fantastic. And then it was just, at that moment, I gradually realized maybe I could be a music major. And then I went to a bigger university as a music major. And um, still the thought of, how, how am I going to make a living at this? I have no idea, but I'm loving it. You know, and you're fine when you're in college, you don't have to make a living at it. But I did get into a wedding band in Chicago at the time, an Italian wedding band. And so I started actually making money at playing music. And um, then, well, I'll just keep going. If you want to hear this whole story. Uh, yeah, go right ahead, please. Okay. So I'm making a, you know, hundred dollars a night on the weekends, driving into Chicago from my university to play uh, these Italian weddings. And uh, by the time I was graduating, I had, I had uh, actually gotten married to someone in college and we both decided we want to move to Los Angeles and just try to start from there. And, and boy, everybody was telling me, yeah, we'll see you back here again. No, you're not going <laughs> to. And I'm like, okay, well, I got to try even my, my parents. And I said, look, just consider this graduate school. I'm going to go out there and <laughs> just try. If it doesn't work, you'll see me back in a couple of years, you know? And, but they were very supportive and uh, it did take a couple of years. I mean, I was, I moved to LA. I didn't know a soul and there was no internet back then to search for anything. <laughs> so I was looking in the, what they called it, the recycler, this newspaper mm that just basically had one ads for jobs or people selling stuff and that kind of thing, little paid advertisements and bands would advertise in there looking for an R&B keyboard player, looking for a, this or that, you know, top 40 band looking for musicians. So I would go on these, uh, a few auditions for bands when I would lug down a keyboard, some amplifiers, speakers, the whole works, what I got to perform. And uh, nine out of 10 times, it was just, they were horrible, basically. And I'm like, oh my God, I did not want to play with these musicians. <laughs> but finally, I got into a band um, that wasn't too bad. As a matter of fact, the bass player I met was named, uh, I remember at the audition thinking, wow, that bass player sounds like Marcus Miller. He's so good. And we talked later and we became friends immediately, lifelong friends. He's still my friend. He actually Whoa. plays bass with Boney James now. But he went on to work with Anita Baker, a lot of different people. His name is uh, Smitty Smith. Mm. And uh, just funny. One of the first people I meet is still my friends now to this day. Mm. And uh, he was from Washington, D.C. had moved out here um, and uh, actually 
needed a place to stay. So <laughs> he came and lived with me for, for a few months with me and my wife uh, here in L.A. And uh, I just slowly but surely started meeting a few people like that of that quality. Um, and then I met a drummer that was the drummer for Frankie Beverly and Mays on a game. Mm. And mm. for whatever reason, he took a liking to me. We became friends also. And he had already done a lot of work and got me an audition with uh, Tina Marie. Mm-hmm. His name is Michael White. And uh, that was what started. Uh, that was my very first real tour. And which until you have that first real tour, no one would have taken you seriously out here. It was kind of like, well, who have you played with? They're always like, I don't know. I played with myself. That's all you can say. So, <laughs> so finally I could say, yes, Tina Marie, that's the name they know. And they're like, Oh, okay. Uh, and that, you, uh, go ahead. Yeah. You told me a little something about the Tina Marie tour backstory that I want you to share again, because I thought that was fascinating. You get this big break to play with Tina. Oh Marie. yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and tell me what happened? Yes. Yes. So, well, we auditioned, we auditioned process, and then I got the gig, and we start rehearsing. And she was going to rehearse for a very long tour. It was called the Budweiser Super Festival. And this tour we were going to be doing included, well, Tina Marie, Freddie Jackson, L.A. and Babyface, when they had the band The Deal, uh, Gladys Knight and the Pips, and Earth, Wind & Fire. So this is all together on one stage and one night. This is a big deal. <laughs> I'm actually thinking, you know, the, I got through the rehearsal process and, and then I'm thinking, my God, I'm going to be in front of 10,000 people every night. I don't even know how I'm going to react. Like, am I going to free? I was afraid I was just going to freeze or something when I saw 10,000 people, but uh, I actually did. Okay. I got through the first concert and I'm like, I really like this feeling of having a lot of people out there cheering for you and just being around all these great musicians. Then uh, only Three weeks into the tour, we're in uh, Dallas, I think it was, and uh, we start vamping this song, Ooh La La La. I don't know if you remember that or not. Oh, yeah. That was, that was her hit at the time. <laughs> and Everett Harp, the saxophone player, was in the band as well, and he, is, he used to start the song off with a solo, and she would be off stage while we vamped this intro to Ooh La La La. And we're playing. The 16 bars go by another 16 bars and there's like okay what's going on and we just keep playing and playing there's no tina marie finally someone's like you know you guys can stop she ain't coming out she had she in the dark she had uh there was a gap in the stage apparently somewhere where she had fallen through the stage and like Mm. broke some ribs it was horrible so that was the end of that Mm. uh tour unfortunately but uh right after that is like i said at least i had something to uh make uh, to tell people i had done and then i started <laughs> getting more offers there's a lot more auditions and slowly the gigs came but the the real the greatest opportunity was was getting the call from george duke which really and that, really and that that's right that's a huge story right there so you got to share that with us because i also remember you sharing that information and that was just a fascinating experience. It had to be surreal and so much more. But walk us through that journey. Well, it, it's I had been working with, like I mentioned, Everett Harp, who's a very good friend of mine. Uh, a lot of these guys, they were just recent transplants to Los Angeles. Um, Everett was one of those. He came from Houston, Texas. And uh, 
so we would do these local gigs around LA, whatever club we could play at. And uh, he had met George and another guy I had worked with was named Byron Miller, who had been with George all through the reach for days. And uh, I had, but I'd worked a little with, with, with him. So somehow one of them gave, I knew George Duke and Stanley Clark were arranging for a tour. They had gotten back together, the Clark Duke project, and this was going to be Clark Duke three. The return of George Duke and Stanley Clark needed a band. They were going to hire a keyboard player and a, another bass and a drummer. Sorry. Uh, and they had a what they call a cattle call audition, which they don't really have for music gigs anymore around here. But that was a thing back then where you would have a hundred keyboard players and a hundred drummers <laughs> just come through during the day at a rehearsal studio and they would listen to you play a song. And then, you know, either you're out or that's it. So I didn't get called for the cattle call. And I was like, dang it. You know, I don't know why, but they didn't find anybody they liked. So a week after that, that big audition they had, I got a phone call and it was a woman says, hi, this is George Duke's secretary. And I said, okay, she, he wondered if you'd be interested in coming down to audition for the tour with him, and Stanley Clark. And I said, well, I don't know. I have to think about it. No, that's okay. So, uh, <laughs> of course. So I, I drove down uh, to his house in the Hollywood Hills, big house up on a hill and you got to park down at, a, at the end of the driveway had a gate. It was a very long driveway that went straight up this hill. If the park at the bottom of the driveway, ring a buzzer and then they let you in and you walk up this hill and ring another buzzer to get into the, his studio. And I go in, there's a, his recording engineer. He goes, yeah, George will be here in a minute. And George comes out and he says, Hey, come back in the studio and, uh, and you can uh, we'll play a couple songs and see how it goes. Now, uh, I actually wasn't that nervous only because I thought there's no way in heck I'm getting this gig. There's, there's just no way I, I'm, I'm not going to be funky enough. I mean, who, these guys are amazing. This, but whatever, I thought it would just be fun to get to meet George. So I went back and did a little variety of musical things. Didn't spend more than 15 minutes probably. And, and he goes, okay, he goes, uh, it's not pretty good. I go, why don't you come back tomorrow and I'll have Stanley come here. Like, All right. I've, Say goodbye to the engineer and walk down that hill and back out the gate and drove back home. I go back the next day, press the buzzer, walk up the hill, go in. There's Stanley Clark and George Duke. And so uh, we go back into George's uh, studio room. And uh, now Stanley plays, play about 20 minutes. We went through the four or five little things. And uh, Stanley's like, yeah, okay, you're okay, you know. So he goes, George says, okay, well, we'll let you know. <laughs> so I start leaving and I stopped to talk to their, their engineer before I left the, the studio. And uh, then George comes out and goes, Hey man, you got the gig. So wow. That was it. Wow. Um, that was I, the moment. That was it. And then uh, from there, gosh, that was about 1990, I think 89 or 90. And uh, solid 10 years, I worked with George. And boy, because of him, there was just so many opportunities that mm. the musicians we worked with, right off the bat, I was meeting Kirk Whalum, Gerald Albright, uh, in doing tours with him, Najee, mm. Rochelle Farrell, mm. uh, eventually Anita Baker, got to do a couple of things with her, James Ingram, uh, boy, Jeffrey Osborne. 
And the great thing about once you you played with George is somebody says, oh, who's the Simpson guy? Oh, he plays with George Duke. Oh, he's cool. You know, it was literally that simple. That's that's how powerful George's name was. If that guy gives you the stamp of approval, that's you're it. Right. You know, you're yeah. like a made guy. So uh, <laughs> that was that was what was so amazing about it. And of course, Stanley was a wonderful person, too. And uh, I just love those guys. I love being around them. Uh, beyond making the music, they were just such wonderful people. And mm. uh, well, Stanley still is, of course. Uh, and uh, I just learned. Um, and also, I'll say from from George, you know, just how he treated the people he worked with. And I learned you did because when you're coming up in this business, you're going to meet the worst first, probably <laughs> the, the people that are just not in it for the right reasons and mm. trying to take your publishing or rip you off in some way, boy, they're everywhere, especially mm. back then in the music business. Mm. And George was just so not about that. You know, mm. he was always was never trying to take people's publishing because he had certainly had the opportunity mm. to, 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 in a business mm. sense, to take advantage mm. of people. You know, it's, it's, a, it's very, it's not uncommon. Mm. It, so uh, I'm just so happy, you know, that I had such a, a, a good example of how the business could be run and, and just how he treated people on stage. Um, and I love the aspect that when he did a show, it wasn't when you were playing live, he wasn't like, no, I don't expect this to be like the record. This is not the record. This is something completely different. So he never expected you to just play verbatim what was on a record, which uh, which I like that. Uh, you know, you never knew what was going to happen in a show, you know, and I, I, I like that. So, uh, that's awesome. So, stuff. Yeah, I, I got a lot, so much out of that experience, you know, and then of course, later on, he ended up playing on a couple of my projects, which is just, you know, that's something I'll, I'll always treasure for the rest of my life. You know, when, when someone like that is, gives you, shares their gift with you, you know, it's just incredible.
That's Brian Simpson with someone just like you. Now back to Kenny's interview with Brian on Jazz with Kenny Anderson. How did you become Dave Cos's musical director? I met Dave uh, yeah, around that time, too. It would have been the early 90s, I guess. And uh, he was just playing at a, in a jazz club. And it was around the time of his first or second record. Actually, I remember what it was. I was Everett Harp had just released a record on Capitol Records, and we were doing a showcase. And uh, Dave was there. And then he called me later and asked me about being in his band. And at the time, I was touring with George, uh, Tina Marie, Sheena Easton, and uh, and he told me what the money was. And I says, you know what? It's just I. I I make more than that. Yeah. Doing these other gigs. So I can't. So, uh, but you know, we remained friends and he, he was a very nice guy. So, uh, years go by and then, um, I needed a gig. <laughs> so I'm like, uh, Hey Dave, remember what I said about not being able to afford me? We, we, we talk about that. So, uh, the timing was just perfect. He was putting a new band together. Uh, he had a brand new record coming out and, uh, I was available. So, we started working together, and uh, once again, I, I Dave is a very gifted person and just a prince of a guy, you know. And mm -hmm. I, I got to say that once again, I guess because I I got to meet so many lousy people when I got started in this business that it was just mm -hmm. so nice to be to work with nice people and yeah. just people with good hearts like yourself, you know. And and yeah. <laughs> I've I've you know I've just I try to tell other people that are just getting started it's like boy you don't have to put up with any crap because there are good mm. people out there you know just mm. don't you know in any relationship just you want to be around people that that are a positive not a negative and uh, I've been so lucky with that and then Dave was one of those once again a lot of opportunities with Dave he ended up starting his own uh, record label which released my second CD mm -hmm. um which you know really kicked off my career i had one that came out in 95 but it was with a small label and just didn't have the promotional uh, machine behind it at the time but then when i came out in 1995 i had a number one smooth jazz hit and that's when i got an agent and was able to slowly start doing my own shows and actually become brian simpson the artist not just the guy that's in the back playing keyboards <laughs> funking things up. Uh, Brian, I got to ask you this because two of my favorite Brian Simpson projects you can't find. At least you can't find if you walk into a, a particular place to purchase the CD. Um, Closer Still and Above the Clouds. Now, I'm going to ask you about both of those projects independently because I want you to talk about the collaboration on Closer Still with Janet Jackson. Well, uh, that the year that came out was 1995, um, and at the beginning of 1995, I had gotten a call to play with Janet Jackson for a three-month tour out of the country. It was a, it was a world tour, and we were going to leave uh, in February and not come back for three months. <laughs> I had never I had done tours, but nothing like that. <clears throat> And it uh, started in Australia. From a, first of all, she is a sweet, sweet person. And and if there's any question about can she sing, can she not sing, I'll say this. Uh, 
we were on stage still kind of in the rehearsal process. We'd rehearsed in LA for a, for a month, flew to Australia with a whole and with an entire set. They had to ship over. This is a stage with bombs going off and pyrotechnics and stuff. Yeah. This, this goes over on a ship weeks in advance. And we go over there, the ship meets us with all this stuff. And we rehearsed there for another uh, week or two in, in Sydney. And, uh, I remember they didn't have this monitor set up for some reason. And I'm kind of upstage and she's way downstage and I couldn't hear. There's one song that was just me and her, the song called uh, again. And it's, it's mostly just piano and her and I couldn't hear to rehearse it. So I said, I, I can't hear you. Could you come up here? Well, anyway, she came right up there and sang the song right in my ear as I was playing. So I can tell you from, <laughs> From her <laughs> mouth to my ears, that, that that she can sing, and it was really beautiful. So, wow. no question about it. But, but in those shows, the, you can't. It was like a uh, a uh, a gymnastic show with the dancers and her. <laughs> they were just dripping sweat from the minute that show started. It was it was an aerobics show. So I don't know how anyone could sing through that. It was just, <laughs> it was unbelievable. I've never seen anybody work so hard in a performance. It was crazy. I mean, uh, anyway, that was, that was really wonderful. So there was really no collaboration though with that song. What happened was I wanted to record it. Uh, the song called um, Because of Love, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, we weren't even doing in Janet's show, but um I was able to acquire the uh, the loop that was used in the song. And that's mm. what I used. I used the entire band, the Janet Jackson band, while we were in London. I found a little studio. We got in there and I needed, because I needed one more song to finish this project. And so I decided to do that. And uh, that's how the song was recorded in a little studio mm. in London. And that went on as the last song on that project. And, wow. Uh, well, actually, it was, it's pretty good. If you look up, you can still find, you can download the song. It's on mm -hmm. uh, iTunes or whatever. The, mm -hmm. the the album that you're talking about is called Closer Still, my very first CD, 1995. Yeah. yeah, and then the other one, Above the Clouds, you actually had someone play on that album that was one of my favorites, uh, NBA, former NBA star, Wayman Tisdale, who was a phenomenal bassist. And uh, uh, tell me a little bit about that collaboration <laughs> yeah well Wayman and I well anybody almost anybody that met Wayman I'm sure became his friend immediately he was this I don't know if you've ever met him just I never the did nicest person you could imagine meeting he's such a lovely guy and uh what well, you'd call a gentle giant yeah because he was <laughs> extremely <laughs> tall <laughs> just a sweet and funny I mean you just loved being around a guy you know and it'd be first thing in the morning we'd be on a tour bus together and you know i am not a morning person you know and it'd be like 6 a.m when the bus is rolling up somewhere and i'm like oh my god no <laughs> quiet out there you know anybody in the bus making noise but he wakes up loud happy i mean it was like oh my god he's he was one of a kind absolutely one of a kind and uh his personality was as big as he was i mean he was just so much fun to be around and of course, we were on the same label with Dave, with with Kaz's label, and um, you know, I asked him. He might even ask me if he, if he could play on something. I don't. know. He was that kind of guy, and so I had this song with with him in mind uh, that I'd written for one of my daughters, uh, 
song, uh, Fiona's song. And I sent it to him and he had actually already gone through a round of uh, chemotherapy and surgery. And he was just on the mend. He, I think he had just moved back to from, he'd moved out of Los Angeles at the time when he got sick and uh, he was back in Tulsa. And, he, and he, he called me, he goes, you know, I'm starting to feel a little better. And I got the studio set up again. I'm looking for something to do, literally like that. Mm. And in this window of time, he played uh, bass like only he could play it and <laughs> melodically. And I, I don't know if you know this, he was, he was not a trained musician. He, he was self-taught and yet had more natural ability than so many people I've I've come across he's just he was just a natural just like yeah. he was with basketball i think it was the same thing yeah. he was just a natural he said in basketball he would say he didn't work at it he like guys <laughs> like uh he was around like michael jordan and stuff that he says he didn't have the heart to work at it like the, at that level he mm -hmm. was just naturally whatever was you saw was just what came naturally and it was kind of like that with the music he actually put more into his music i think wow. and, and he loved it and wow. um yeah, and it's you know so many people ask me about that song, and it's just, and it's just I think you just hear his big personality in in that song and every every note he plays. It's and, a beautiful song indeed, yeah, yeah. and it's uh, again part of my favorite album. Uh, Brian, as I said at the very beginning, we've come to a very challenging uh, 14, 15 months or so, and uh, the COVID pandemic, of course, shut a lot of things down. You had a full line of dates to play in 2020. It pretty much got eliminated after the middle of March, and of course, that allowed you to spend more time at home. We've kind of talked about this before, too, uh, just family time, but also music time. Kind of talk about the kinds of experiences that you had uh, family-wise and then music-wise during that time. Yeah. Um, I'll say this, and I know it's because it was such a horrible time for so many people. I don't, I don't always feel comfortable saying it was a great thing for me, but in my situation, uh, it was it was just like hitting the pause button on life and boy, did I need it because I was just running ragged on these gigs. I just was, it was hard to keep up with my schedule for me. And uh, yeah, just things at home. My house was kind of falling apart and I just couldn't keep up with things. Uh, and in your family, it can happen in your family too. And mm. Uh, when it happened, it was kind of, I breathed it with every cancellation of a gig. I kind of breathed a sigh of relief in all honesty. Um, it was scary, but at the same time, I'm like, boy, I am just, just glad that I'm not like, I don't have to drive to the airport this weekend and I can just, this is just another week. I can concentrate on me and my house and the things at home that I needed to take care of. And, uh, it was, it was just great. It was it was great in that regard. Um, of course, I mean, I lost friends, you know, not just from COVID, but a, a very close friend of mine was the drummer for George Benson passed away last June. And it's just tragically sad. You know, that, that this, you know, a lot of a lot of horrible things were happening. And then in, in a lot of areas, you know, just politically, just how crazy it was. Um, but I did. I. I signed this record deal at the beginning in it was actually right before the pandemic hit i just happened to re-up my deal and they're like here's the money go make a record so i went to work right away i got to work with a 
um, a young guy. Uh, you may have heard of Nicholas Cole, and uh, and uh, he's in uh, North Carolina, and um, that's really where the record started. I got I wanted to work with somebody young, get some fresh ideas, and um, he was the youngest guy I knew that wrote music in this vein, and and it was just a fantastic start. As a matter of fact, the first single, I have a new CD coming out in, in June. June 25th is the release date. And uh, we co-wrote the first single together, me and Nicholas. And uh, there's, I have four songs we co-wrote together on this CD. But that was the beginning. And uh, I, I knew I would have this, this time, more time than I've ever had for making a CD. And it was, that was really a blessing, you know, that I could take that time to work on the melodies, and I could go back a week later or two weeks later and go back and I can make that better. You know, and this is a thing I didn't have that luxury in the past of kind of going back and fixing th something that uh, I wasn't completely happy with. So I can feel this time when this CD comes out that it's as good as I could make it. And uh, that's that's really saying something. I uh, and it was also a chance to to kind of reconnect with some old friends of mine. I mentioned Michael White, the guy that got me that first gig with Tina Marie, the drummer with Maze. Well, got him back on this project when we hadn't worked together in a long time. And uh, another old friend of mine from Chicago, his name is Ray Fuller. He was a guitar player and we worked together with George back in the day with George Duke. And, uh, and it's another person I just kind of lost contact with and and I think a lot of people would probably happen to you too. You found yourself reconnecting with people from your past mm -hmm. because we were just around and realizing, you know, kind of life is short and, you know, geez, I should kind of reach out with some of my old friends and uh, see how this guy's doing. And that was kind of like what it was like with Ray. And we just had a, a lovely time when he came, was able to work in my studio. You know, we had the masks on and staying 10 feet apart and the whole thing. <laughs> but, uh, I, when I, like I talked about capturing uh, Wayman on, on it, it's, it's kind of the same thing with these guys, you know, their love is, their hearts are in this project. And I can hear, when you hear the guitar playing on these songs and you know, it's Ray, it's like, oh my gosh, you can just, <laughs> not everybody can listen to music on a certain level, you know, where you've been, and I don't fault them for that. It's just, not everybody has that, that ability to appreciate that music on a, on a, that kind of level. But when they do, they can hear that. And it's really special. So, you, so this, this record is just important to me in so many ways. And, and as a matter of fact, the title of the album is All That Matters. Wow. Wow. And is that inspired by the, reflection, the reflections during the pandemic? Absolutely. 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 Hmm. You know, and uh, I'm, I'm hoping uh, you can call it the heart or the emotion. It's, it's something I, I strive for always. And I'm, we probably talked about it before that that's what I'm going for. And uh, I really feel this, this one packs a, a punch in the emotion department. I hope so. You know, I really was going for that with these melodies. Well, it certainly feels that way. I think you've probably landed a grand slam, not just a whole run, but a grand <laughs> slam on this one. And we're looking forward to hearing all that matters Brian, you're looking forward, of course, to the rest of this year. And then, of course, 2022 is right around the corner. So touring is going to begin once again. And I understand that your schedule is filling up fast. Not surprising, but tell me about what that feeling is like. Yeah, you know, with 
kind of started last month. Um, my agent, uh, Steve Butler's in, in New York and we, before the pandemic, we talk every day practically about work or whatever. And, uh, months were going by where I wasn't hearing from Steve and, uh, because he wasn't working, I wasn't working, and there was nothing to talk about. And last month, I thought, okay, these gigs are going to kind of trickle in starting in July. I told him I really didn't want to work until July or August. And uh, things would, I thought, oh, there'll be a, a date a month, maybe a gig a month. They'll kind of trickle in until next year, and then things will slowly get back. And it just came flooding in i am he's calling me every every day a couple times a day that we got another <laughs> offer we got another offer we got another i'm doing so far at least 20 21 22 cities already this year and, and the phone is still ringing so uh it's pretty exciting uh i'm i'm you know fingers crossed that everything stays the way it is and and uh nothing has to get canceled, but it's pretty uh, encouraging. I, I'm really excited about it. As a matter of fact, I'm going to be not too far away from you in uh, Birmingham. In I, th I told you earlier, in August 13, I'll be at the perfect note. And uh, I'm really looking forward to that. I wish I could stop by Huntsville, but uh, I don't think I'm going to have time. Well, I'll make sure to make it on down to Birmingham and see uh, you and my friend TK at the perfect note, uh, doing a great job down there keeping the jazz music alive. Brian, this has been a great conversation. Um, you have given us so much insight into who Brian Simpson is and how the magic has been created over the years. And again, uh, you are absolutely one of my favorite people in the world, even beyond the music, because you just are a good soul. And I appreciate you for taking this time and joining me on my platform today, Jazz with Kenny Anderson. Absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure, my friend. <laughs> How do people connect with you? You got a big social media presence. You got a website. You got a lot of stuff going on out there. Let's let people know how to connect to you because you got a big release June the twenty fifth. All that matters. And you got to be careful now. For the longest time, I was kind of the only Brian Simpson that popped up when you typed my name in on Google. But now I, I have. Uh, there's a comedian who's actually very good. His name is Brian Simpson. <laughs> the only difference is we're different skin color, but. Ah. That is, that's how you'll know the difference between us, Brian Simpsons. But uh, he's, he's a good comedian. But um, if you, you can type uh, bsimpsonmusic.com, you can find me there. Or Google search Brian Simpson. Um, like I said, new CD, June 25, available, Amazon, iTunes. And Najee is featured guest on it. And um, you will, yeah, that's where you can find me. All and on right. Facebook, you can follow me there, Instagram, Twitter, all that stuff. So. Yeah, you're you're out and about. You're not hiding from anyone, and we appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> no. Brian, thank you again, my brother. I appreciate you, man. All right, man. Thank you, Kenny. Jazz with Kenny Anderson is a partnership with Jazz in the Park Huntsville and is produced by David Person for David Person Media, LLC. The theme music was written and produced by Kelvin Wooten. Damian Malone provides podcast platform management. We hope you'll join us for the next episode of Jazz with Kenny Anderson. The Cynthia Joyner Real Estate Group is an award-winning team with hundreds of successful transactions under their belt. Through their national network, the Cynthia Joyner Real Estate Group works hard to help families realize the dream of home ownership. 
as a community advocate, Cynthia Joyner is proud to be the presenting sponsor of Jazz in the Park Huntsville. You can find the Cynthia Joyner Real Estate Group on the web at CynthiaJoyner.com.